Before we jump into the roundtable for today, this is just a reminder that all of this is educational in nature and should not be a substitute for medical advice. And so if you are having pain and you need to seek care, please contact your physician or your orthopedic physical therapist. All right, let's get to the roundtable. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Doctors of Running Virtual Roundtable, where we three doctors of physical therapy discuss the art and the science to the stuff that we are putting on our feet and more now. Um, the docket today is, is pretty fun. We're going to be talking about one of the shoes that actually I've been testing um, over the last couple of weeks. Then we're going to dive into another pathology that a lot of people uh, probably have experienced at some point if you've been a runner for a while or if you're a new runner, and that's plantar fascia pain or pain on the bottom of your foot or in your heel. Uh, and then we're going to be talking about how differences in body weight for each runner might play a role in selecting shoes. And so that's kind of the layout of the day. But before we get there, I just want to hear a little bit about how you guys are doing and how training's going. Um, David, you've been coming off of the ankle sprain. So give us an update on how that's going and kind of where you're at in your marathon training. Yeah, I mean, right now things are looking like they're on the up. So I'm pretty optimistic. Um, obviously, the last month and a half or so have been pretty rocky. A lot of ups and downs. No and, pun intended uh, with the rocky, huh? Oh, geez. <laughs> Don't remind me. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's going good. I mean, I'm running without pain and I'm able to put as much force into it as I want. I don't feel like my gait is altered in any way. Uh, this last week, I got two workouts in and a long run earlier today, and I'm, I'm starting to run quick on it again, and it's and it's responding. So, um, yeah, things are on the up. I'm looking forward to things. Uh, the marathon is still a little ways away. It's the California International Marathon. It is December 5th. Uh, it's up in the Sacramento area, and it should be a good time. Um, on the immediate docket, we got Surf City Half Marathon down in Huntington Beach, and uh, I don't really know what to expect for that one. You know, it's, it's a couple of weeks out now, a little less than that. Uh, it's September 11th. So with how everything has been, I'm just going to go have some fun, have a nice weekend in Huntington beach and, uh, and just see what, see, see how it goes. Do you, for you, you know, like a, a race like that, um, where you haven't been able to train the way you want because of injury, how do you approach, like, what do you take from those races? Like, do you use it as an actual stepping stone of like where you're actually at or do you throw it out or do you give it your all or do you go easy? Kind of what, how do you approach something like that? It's a different answer if you ask me or my coach, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I had to convince him just to allow me to run it. So that was, that was a couple of days ago. Uh, um, it's probably going to be more of a workout and see what the legs have, get some aerobic work in, but not go to the, but not go to the well, you know, most likely, uh, but still get a good time out of it. Uh, I don't know what the exact plan is right now. If you ask me, I say, screw it. Let's go race. <laughs> That's just how I am. Right. But <laughs> your competitive side will come out. Yeah. But I have enough patience and discipline to, to pull the reins back and, and look at the bigger picture of things going forward. I mean, the main goal is December. It's not now. So yeah, um, just going to go out there, have fun and kind of see where I'm at and have it as a little bit of a baseline, you know, going forward. Um, but I'm not expecting any fireworks to go off <laughs> right. in a couple of weeks. Cool. And Matt, you, you just raced this past weekend, right? 
yeah uh as usual as usual regina actually was like hey we're gonna do a race tomorrow i'm like uh okay and so we're happy to do the sunrise stampede cross-country 5k supporting roosevelt high school in eastville um uh in partnership with uh we run republic and joe nakamura and all those great great people down there i didn't know what to expect i actually thought regina was going to beat me because she had a great workout on wednesday and i was like trailing way behind. there's just been some stuff in my life recently that like kind of took me down a notch so i was just trying to hang on and uh yeah came in second helped the high schooler ahead of me pr and i was like what's your what's your personal record to go and he goes this race now so came oh, in second awesome. managed to run like a 1635k which is not what i was expecting to do and the best part which as i typically like using shoes that are not appropriate for the course guess what shoe i wore I mean, we know you guys know. So, and nobody can see this on the podcast, but I'm holding up the ASICS Metaspeed Sky, which I've also used for trail races. And uh, yeah, the durability and that shoe is amazing. So I use the Metaspeed Sky for a cross country race and it actually did very well. I did not die or slip, um, but I would not suggest it. So I'll probably try to go with a cross country shoe next time. Uh, you just well, love that shoe so much. Yeah. It's like, I don't, it's like, I almost don't want to like it, but I really like it. So it, it seems to work for me for whatever reason. So yeah. Uh, but at a time that faster than I was expecting. So just trying to get, not really doing a ton of speed work, just trying to get training in and not have a heart attack. So yeah, nice. can ask for more. I was happy to go support a uh, local high school cross country team. So that's cool. Yeah. Just a quick update on my training. My marathon's in, I should know it better than this, six weeks, yep. five weeks. Um, in there. So getting close and I haven't died yet. So that's a good update. But we're gonna we're gonna transition um, talking about the shoe of the week, uh, that or the week couple weeks. Um, this is a shoe that I've been putting miles in, and actually our full review is released on darksandrunning.com. And what are you holding up, Matt? I know what it is. I can tell by the outside. Oh, that's not the shoe. That's oh, okay. not the shoe. I thought we doing shoe of the week. All right. No. <laughs> Sorry. Um, we are, but Nathan chooses. It's, oh, okay. my, it's my shoe this time. You're first. Uh, okay. I've been putting miles in on the Enda Lapatet. This is kind of like, this is their second edition. They're calling it the Somali ostrich version. Um, and so the big change to this shoe comes in the upper, but a little bit of an update on Enda. If you haven't heard of them, it's a uh, Kenyan based company. So one of their, they have, a, I think the thing that stands out to me about this company is what drives them uh, forward. And it's all about, um, sustainability both within like economics in Kenya and also um, in a product and their um, environmental friendliness. Um, there's just a lot a lot to cheer for and then they try to support their local community initiatives that are going on. So they're doing a lot of good things. And what I like about even their mission statement is they talk about all the things that they're about um, within um, society and the environment. And then they said, right now I do that by making running shoes. And I think that just tells you their heart is not about shoes only. It's about the other stuff first and foremost, and then the shoes follow. But um, yeah, this is this is their second version of this shoe, the La Patette. And it's by them, it's, it's a daily trainer. They talk about it for long runs. It's got uh, 30 millimeters in the heel and 24 in the forefoot. But it honestly feels a lot lower than that. It's a firmer, but but rebound foam. It has a lot of kind of rebound to it when you put in, but it's, it's firm for sure. Uh, and then the big thing that they do, which um, you can read in my review, kind of my thoughts on this, but um, you can see for those who can't 
can't see it, but there's a black section that has kind of a, a full wrap around the heel and then extends into the midfoot. And that's a firmer EVA foam than the rest of it. And then they have that black part up in the front as well. But what they're trying to do is they talk about promoting a midfoot strike. So they have it in their running philosophy to that the midfoot strike is uh, the most efficient. Um, and we've talked at nauseum about that. Actually, like one of our first podcast episodes is our thoughts on that based on kind of what the research is showing regarding those things. So the, the problem with this is not just that it falls into their philosophy, but you can feel it. Um, and I think that's the hardest part about it. I think that if you look at something like the um, Puma Velocity, where it has that kind of C-shaped cup in the heel that's firmer, it works really well. But this extension for some people like myself, you're going to be able to feel it. The big update to this shoe, though, with the upper was like 10 steps forward for Enda, um, except for one component. They took it, they thinned it way out. They got rid of some seams that were irritable and it fits so much more true to size. The other one, I couldn't even get my review in because it was too tight for me. Um, but this one is a much more stretchy. It's a full booty construction. The only, the big problem is just the heel is way too wide. So my heel just slipped all the time. Um, so I think if they added in some padding or if they were able to, the booty's pretty low. Yeah. Hey, there's the original. Cool. Um, I think that if they were able to just dial in this heel a bit, the upper would actually function really well. It stretches good for runs, but it was just way too loose in the heel. So um, I really love the ground feel of the shoe. And I think that it does best, um, honestly, on dirt. Uh, and that was the case for DJ, for David too. I think with the first one, we both kind of felt that way. It just gives it that little extra bit of softness in the lugs. Um, there's kind of these lugs on the outsole and they grip really well. So I loved running in dirt on this and grass, um, but it did well on roads too. And it does have some nice rebound to it. It's a, it's a rebounding foam, but it's very firm. So you can check out the full review on the website and um, drop some questions below if you have them. But it's one of those shoes that like when you buy it, you'd feel good buying it because you know what you're supporting. They're pretty transparent with where their money goes and what it's about. So that's a very real part of making any kind of purchase. So there we go. The end of La Patette. Do you guys have any questions about that one? Or are we good? Uh, it looks like they changed the positions on the midsole. I mean, compared to the original, because they have the higher rebound foam through that midfoot slash late, I guess, late midfoot and late rear foot there. Yeah. And it's like definitely like softer, more reboundy here and then firmer. I guess it's similar. It's the same. Our colors yeah. are just flipped. Yeah, they just, okay, they just inverted it then. Yeah. And then, okay. Yeah. Never mind. <laughs> cool. Does it All still right, say well, Harambe? Harambe. It's awesome. A lot of, there's a lot of uh, influences like from their culture within the shoe, which is fun to read about. They have it all on their website. All right, into our next topic. Uh, today, we're gonna be talking about plantar fascia pain. And a lot of people have probably heard plantar fasciitis is a term. Um, and so we're gonna talk through what that is, what it's not, and then some quick tips on treatment and how shoes play a role if they do. And so we're gonna get into all that stuff. And today, Matt is kind of our tour guide through this. Um, and so I'll be pitching questions to him and David and I will be adding Keep to me on it track. as we go. But Matt, why don't you start by giving us just a general um, kind of definition of what plantar fascia is, 
and kind of the anatomy. Yeah, sure. So the plantar fascia is a very important structure on the bottom of the foot. What it does, it's a band of fascia, right? But it's this very thick tissue on the bottom of the foot that gives an additional amount of passive rigidity and, and structure to the foot. Cause there's the foot has a lot of mobility. There's a ton of joints there and it, the foot needs to be mobile, but also stable at different parts either during the gait cycle or a variety of functions. So this thing starts way back at the heel and not like necessarily where the Achilles comes down, but a little more forward kind of deep in the heel a little bit. And then it spreads out farther and goes forward and ends up spreading out into the toes. While it does that, it, it attaches to various points along the bones that move across there. But one of its main functions besides providing a little extra structure is how it does that is when you extend your first toe or any of the toes for that matter, but especially the big toe, it actually tightens this thing up. And so why that's important is when you are towing off and you are going into what's called terminal stance and pushing off, you have to, or you're, you're supposed to be able to extend that big toe. And when you're pushing off your foot, you're want, you want your foot to be locked up and stable. You don't want to be pushing off an unstable surface. So the plantar fascia is part of what's called the windlass mechanism where it helps as you roll over your first toe, it locks up the foot as you start to go and supinate, or at least you're supposed to, so that you can push off a stable platform. There is some discussion that the plantar fascia can be considered a, a structure that helps with force transmission from the calves into the toes as you push off, but it, it's a passive structure that has a lot of active influences into it. It's very important. You do not want to lose it. There are some very interesting things that happen when you have a plantar fascia release. I would not suggest that unless it's an end thing and we're not going to totally talk about that, but it's just really, also really yeah. quick. When yeah. you talk about, we're not going to go into it, but just yeah. when you said plantar fascia release, that yeah. means taking it and cutting the plantar fascia. Yeah. I would not suggest that unless there's like really nothing left because yeah. you're going to, it's a very important structure. So people often ask like, Oh, well, can I cut it out? I'm like, you don't want to. Uh, it's very important for providing stability um, and a little additional structure to your foot. So and when you this, say, you said that it's, it's a fascia, yeah. um, thinking of that, like a ligament kind of tissue, Almost, where it's not, nothing yeah. contracts. It's just right. like thick um, and it fibrous tissue. Rigid. Yeah. It's relative, yeah. like if you were to pull on, it doesn't stretch. It's just kind of right. like a rigid tissue. Yes. Some, some stretch. Right. It's not a muscle. It doesn't contract by itself. It reacts to positions of joints, essentially. The other thing I felt like I heard you say too, just from a, how it functions is that it's, yeah. it's going through a lot of changing in position as we walk. It doesn't just yes. sit there kind of like our MCL, which just kind of like sits there for a mm -hmm. lot of times if we're not putting stress on it. This right. one, every time we step, it gets stretched and then it gets relaxed and then right. stretched and relaxed. And so, so it's even going through a lot of motion. Even though we call it a passive structure, meaning it's not activating on its own, it goes through a lot that we put a lot of pressure through it, which is why you got to take care of it. So, yeah. so most people have heard the term plantar fasciitis. Um, can you go into why it's, why it's been called that? And just maybe some insight into why we don't necessarily call it that anymore. Yeah. So a lot of things, tendonitis fasciitis. Itis usually refers to acute or very short-term inflammation. Okay. So usually when you have an, in, when I say acute, I mean, injury that just happened like a couple minutes ago or a couple days ago, 
during that phase of healing, right? You've just injured something. There is usually inflammation that happens. Your body's trying to go, all right, I got to get whatever damaged tissue out of there and get some new stuff in here and start rebuilding. The problem with that is that a lot of times these structures aren't always in the acute early phase, right? Oftentimes you can injure them and not necessarily have pain. And so this can actually be going on for a very, very long time. And when pain starts to show up, it may not be acute. It may be what's called chronic, where it's been going on for so long, there isn't any inflammation anymore. So depending on how long an injury has been going on changes what's happening physiologically and also changes how you treat them. For example, you can put ice on an, on an inflamed joint or inflamed uh, tissue because that's going to, that should theoretically, that's a whole nother conversation should theoretically reduce some of the inflammation response. But there's really no point to put ice on a chronically injured tissue because there's usually not inflammation. You can have pain, but no inflammation. So that's why we really stopped calling it that, or at least we should stop calling that because you have to really identify what phase of healing it's in, which can also be hard, if not impossible, depending on how well the patient's able to tell you, you know, this has been going on a couple of days, a couple of months. It can be very difficult to figure out how long things have actually been going on, especially a lot of the individuals that are diagnosing them oftentimes don't have the time to take the history necessary to figure that out. So we oftentimes recommend not calling it fasciitis because it's often not acute. It's often been going on a lot longer. And like you said with that, I think the, the big crux is that it changes what you're, what you're treating, how you're treating, right? You know, because like Matt was kind of saying, just to reiterate it again, I think if you have, if you, if you do something, if you lift 300 pounds with your biceps and your biceps, let's go in tears, it's going to swell or hamstring, whatever muscle it's going to blow up. You're going right. to get the bruising. You're going to get swelling in the area, all of that stuff. And that's a piece of the inf inflammation. Right. And then the question is, okay, how do we treat inflammation first? Right. But if inflammation is not part of your, your pain or your situation, then you don't want to treat inflammation right. um, and you want to treat it a different way. Right. And so like, we'll, we'll have to get into that. Right. Later. Like, uh, oh, we'll wait for that. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I'm learning. Let's, let's talk next a little bit about um, predisposing. Well, I think, no, actually before that, let's talk about going a little bit deeper into what are some cues that might tell you whether if it's acute, like a, a true like itis, or if it's something a little bit more chronic and where is it and how well can we do that? That's a very good question. Uh, David, did you want to jump in a little bit? Sure. I mean, between acute and chronic, you can take a look at the history and if there is a mechanism of injury, I think that's a very important thing to acknowledge because let's say, I'm just trying to think of something off the top of my head. Like if you have a very, very heavy load, like you're moving a bin or something and you have to push off of your foot there and you get an immediate intense pain. Usually this is more of an Achilles or gastroc type injury, but let's say it's to the bottom of the foot. I got one. Dante yeah. DiVincenzo in the, in the playoff game against the heat, he, he planted and to cut and his, he tore his plantar fascia. Perfect. So yep. he, he stepped and cut and had this immediate sharp pain on the bottom of his foot. Yeah. So there, there, there's an acute mechanism of injury. There's something that you can say, this did that. And that helps you as a clinician determine how you're going to treat something. 
Um, I think it's important to get that history as well, because a lot of physicians will say, hey, you have foot pain right there. Okay, go CPT, plantar fasciitis. So a lot of times screening is important. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to keep going. You can go ahead, Matt. No, that's fine. So acute stuff, usually there's a very specific incident that caused the symptoms, right? So getting that from the history is really important. It's always important to make sure you understand where the patient's coming from. Chronic can be, hey, I've had this thing on and off for you know a couple months or a couple years, and then all of a sudden it really flared up. If it's been, if there's been on and off symptoms for a while, that's going to be more chronic. Even if there's not like a specific one time that it started, you're like, oh, you know, back. If it, if there's been some symptoms on and off, you know that there's probably some mild injury occurring. And like I said, just because you have an injury doesn't mean you're going to have a lot of pain. And I'm not trying to scare people. I'm just saying. That's how we figure out whether this is acute, i.e. very short-term, it just happened, there was a big injury, or if it's been going on and on, you've got some kind of ongoing, um, I don't know what the right term to use is without creating any kind of fear here, but um, just some like mild tissue irritation that's been going on for a while. Irritation, was, that's what yeah. I was thinking. Yeah. They're, they, again, they respond very differently because one of them typically, you know, you've got a big thing, we treat that very differently. The tissue is very different from when it's been just happened versus it's been going on for a while. Your body's trying to heal it and it may not be healing as much as is necessary. And it's also possible in these scenarios where you've had this thing that's come periodically over and over, and then you do have a big incident. Hmm. But in that case, you've got both where you have to treat the acute scenario and you have to treat the ongoing scenario. And that's so. called an acute on chronic injury. So we got a lot going on there. And I think one of the other pieces, it's hard clinically or by yourself as a runner um, to be able to differentiate between the two. And so a lot of times the way that treatment ends up looking is trying to address a little bit of both unless, unless it's pretty obvious, but it's murky. You know, we right. don't have the ability to go in and um, although some things are improving, but we don't have the ability to go in there and grab the inflammatory markers and say, yep, they're present or no, they're not. Right. And it, the, the juice of that is not worth the squeeze. So to, to be able to go to, to order that kind of testing for pain on the bottom of your foot near the heel kind of underneath there isn't necessarily worth it. it and, um, it's not worth it because oftentimes it's actually normal to have some of those just in general. And yeah. so we've discovered that like a lot of imaging, unless you're absolutely like certain you want to double confirm it, it's not worth doing because you can have some of the, some of the, the signs in imaging without having symptoms or any pain, even it, you know, so it's like Nathan said, not always worth the squeeze. The other, I'm going to add something really quickly. I promise. The other thing that's really hard with plantar fasciitis and David made a good point is oftentimes people go, Oh, pain on the bottom of the foot, plantar fasciitis you have a lot of other structures there that can also get irritated. You have yes. a lot of muscles in that area. You have a lot of other ligaments in that area. And so if this is not assessed by a professional and you don't get a correct diagnosis, you might be treating it totally the wrong way. And I see a lot of people who say, oh, I have plantar fasciitis. I'm doing all the classic things and it's not working. And it takes me 30 seconds to look at it and go, this is not plantar fasciitis. It's not even in the right area. So it's, there's a lot of stuff there. So do not always assume, oh, I have foot pain. It must be plantar fasciitis. There's yeah, a lot of other factors. I think the other big differential outside of the foot itself is nerve pain. And so yeah. there's, 
um, parts of the tibial nerve branch to the bottom of, well, it doesn't really matter. There's, yep. there's branches of nerves that go there yep. that can either be impinged down at the ankle, even up at the knee or up in the back. So all the way up to your spine, there are things that can be leading to pain that feels pretty much exactly like plantar fascia pain. And um, those, th that's when, if you, if you try some of the, um, and we're going to talk about some of these things to try, but if you've tried all of these things on your own and it's not getting better, that's where seeing somebody who can screen kind of for these outlying scenarios of foot pain can be helpful. And we'll, we'll go there. Right. But let's talk next kind of about what are some predisposing, some known predisposing factors for people who have plantar fascia pain, meaning they looked at a bunch of people who had plantar fascia pain and they were like, what do these people have in common? Like, what are some things that may have been leading to the plantar fascia pain? What are some of those things? And I've got a couple, but I'll let you guys go too. So uh, one of the big ones is obviously having a, a large body mass. Okay. So the, the heavier you are, and not necessarily if you're muscular, but if the heavier you are, the more weight you're carrying, the more impact that goes through that tissue and the more that tissue has to handle as you progress over it. So large body weight is certainly one of them. Um, longer, correct me if I'm wrong, like work-related stuff where you got to stand on your feet for long periods of time, not just running. And so we don't just talk. We also, when we're talking about the stuff, recognize that Sometimes running may not be the thing that injured it. It may be other factors that in an individual's life that may have caused this. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Diabetes is also a really, really big risk factor just because especially when that gets more advanced, it starts changing some of your physiology it can very negatively affect some of the tissue, especially out in your extremities, like your foot. Uh, Nathan, you had a couple other ones, David. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I think it kind of goes without saying to some degree, yeah. but just, just repetitive motions that could potentially irritate it and in a chronic nature, um, especially if there's already some discomfort or inability or lack of motion in certain areas, and maybe you're putting excessive stress on it chronically. Um, but I would just say repetitive load and stress. Yeah. Especially then, specifically over training or training more than your body is capable of handling and it can't heal fast enough. Mm-hmm. A couple other of the, the regulars, um, the, they found that people who have decreased length of their calves, so tight calves where you have decreased dorsiflexion, meaning your ability, your toes to come up, that's a predisposing factor, which makes sense from Matt was talking about how some people argue that the Achilles comes down into the heel and then it wraps underneath and attaches right into this plantar fascia. So that, you know, they work together as a unit to create these propul the propulsion um, off of the toe. And so if you have tightness in the calf, the idea is that that creates a constant tension through the plantar fascia, which could be predisposing some of that. So that's one thing. And then another one that I, I've read about, there's a study that was done just looking at for these, and it talked about decreased hamstring length as well. So oh, people who have that. tight hamstrings, which I haven't fully figured this one out, but people with be. tight hamstrings. It could be a fascial relationship. Yeah, yeah. Down the posterior yeah. chain, pulling up on the proximal gastroc, which in turn pulls on. Yep. Yep. I could easily see that being a relationship. Yep. So nothing, nothing works in isolation. Yeah. Check above and below. Yep. yep. And these, these, I should, we should state too, like most of these, these studies are done in a, in a notion where we can call them correlations um, and not causes, but it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't think about uh, making sure you have adequate hamstring length and um, meaning that you're, they're not tight uh, and that your calves are also stretched out as well. Um, but 
I should note that things we are talking about are coming from evidence-based practice, right? So we're referring to the physical therapy clinical based uh, clinical practice guidelines for plantar heel pain. Um, and I'm also referring to a couple other systematic reviews that are out there that have also supported what we're talking about. The hamstring one, I think I know which one Nathan's talked about. There's still early evidence. It's not really in a full-blown thing yet. We still need to confirm that, definitely correlational, but there's a lot of research on this stuff. So here, here's, an, here's a question kind of starting to veer into the treatment side of things. And so we, I think we can kind of put together prevention. And if you start to just get these first niggles of, oh, I'm getting a little pain on the bottom of my foot, what kind of stuff do you recommend that people try to do? I'll let David start because I think we, this is something we're super fortunate to do is having this knowledge means that when something shows up, we're able to usually go, I know what this is. I'm going to knock it out of the park really quickly. So that's the awesome part about being a physical therapist or any rehab professional, being able to recognize it and knock it out of the park. And he was able to do this. And this is probably one of the reasons you came back as fast as you did, probably not as fast as you want from the ankle sprain. So David, why don't you start on what you would say early on, if you started feeling some symptoms like this, what would you do? Probably take a deep breath first. <laughs> there, there's some big evidence on that, especially as related to stress and fear affecting pain. So that's not a joke. That's actually very serious. Yeah. Take a deep breath. Take a look at things. Um, it's obviously, it can be difficult to find what the, the pain generating source is. I mean, obviously you have a location, but that doesn't exactly mean that's what the problem is or where it's coming from or why it's happening. Uh, I probably would, I'd probably start off. I know my ankles can be a little on the stiff side. Uh, I know my calves are a little bit on the tighter side. I probably would start with a little bit of ankle mobility and some calf stretching. I don't know if I would go straight to great toe extension. I know a lot of people have a habit of doing that, especially in the, in the Instagram media world, people love to show those little like rollers where you put your great toe on it and then you lean forward on it and really lengthen that thing out. That just looks irritating to me, uh, especially early on, unless you can really dial it in that like this windless mechanism isn't working. Um, you can go ahead, Matt. Any, what David's talking about is any time that you start to feel things, don't be aggressive with it. Cause if you do have even a mild acute injury, if you're super aggressive, you can make it worse. So like, especially working on like gentle stretching of the calf, I don't know if I would do stretching of the first toe just because that's going to directly pull on that tissue versus like stretching the calf. At least there's going to be some tension, but not nearly as much of that. So gentle. The other thing I would add is like maybe doing a little bit, like get, get a tennis, tennis ball, not a golf ball initially, but like a tennis ball, gently rolling out the bottom of your foot, right? Don't kill it. Right. But gently rolling that thing out, maybe rolling it on an ice, uh, a frozen water bottle is also a really, really common thing. Well, that's, that's going to be a common recommendation that people make in general. Um, and just continue to try to move appropriately within a, a pain level that's tolerable to you and maybe modify some activities as needed, but don't stop yeah, moving if possible. I I think it's important to note that this is a fascial structure as well. Yeah. And for the listeners and the viewers out there, fascia isn't necessarily the structure that's purely linear. It is multidirectional. You can almost think of it as like a giant, almost like little spider web matrix that lines all of your tissues and ligaments and tendons, and you can get all whacked out with it. But um, 
I'm very sad That's, that people could not see that on uh, yeah. the podcast. If you're listening to this on audio, we are we're we did out not there. see all the arm motions from both Nathan and DJ. So maybe <laughs> we will turn this into we'll grab that for Instagram and post just that little section. We'll talk to Bach. <laughs> Yeah, I'm but that's sorry. probably for me personally, I yeah. probably would start more at the calves and a little bit of ankle mobility because you can affect the structure from above while putting a lot less force on that area. And because this is a fascial connection, you can actually ease some of that tension without addressing it specifically. Like you could you could not touch it at all and still affect it positively. That is something that I think a lot of people aren't really aware of. Um, that they think it hurts here, so I have to address right here but you don't have to go straight to the point immediately, at least. Um, you can definitely loosen stuff up around it. And that can commonly be a nice way to unload it. I'm sorry, Nathan, what were you saying? I think the other piece we haven't talked about, um, Matt referenced that the only thing, I, the, the plantar fascia is not the only thing under your foot. There's four different layers of muscles. And so another, another thing that I, uh, myself and uh, something that I have my patients start early is working on the muscles that sit on the bottom of the foot, um, as well as some of the other muscles outside of the ankle that support the arch. So um, I'll have people work on what I call dome and splain. And so all of the muscles that sit just on the inside of your foot are called intrinsic muscles because they start and end on the foot. And so doming is like trying to take the ball of your foot and pulling it towards your heel without curling your toes. And so that's a, that's a dome. And then a splay is just trying to spread all of your toes apart. And what those two exercises do is they activate a lot of those muscles that sit underneath the foot. And the reason you'd want to work on that is because they are dynamic supporters of the exact same thing that the plantar fascia is trying to do. And so if you are activating them and getting them ready, they can be an assistance to the plantar fascia if it's irritated. Yeah, In the same way would... working on tibialis posterior, uh, which is a muscle that comes down the inside of the ankle. Um, and then you can looking at another muscle, pronius longus, which comes around the outside, but wraps underneath. These are muscles that also support the arch. And so getting them active, not like I don't have people do heavy weights. It's just repetitive kind of band work just to get those muscles active can be a helpful way in the kind of early um, niggle phase of, uh, of, uh, do you guys call them niggles? I call them niggles. Uh, I, I've I never don't. addressed, I've heard you say that so many times. Like I've heard that phrase before and I haven't really addressed it, but no, not really. <laughs> I, I mean, but I know what you're referring to and yes, I've heard we, we know that it doesn't weird me out. Is that like an East, that Midwest, East coast thing? I've no, not, no. I, I've heard uh, that here, but people out here that say niggle. Yeah. Just when you first start to feel it, that's what yeah. we'll say. Then I have people start yeah. intrinsic footwork, um, as well as working on those other two stirrups. I like to call them. Yeah. You know, the I call them stirrups yeah. as well. And yeah. the mechanism behind this is the the this is why in PT we do this all the time for passive structures, right? The stronger we know this from the evidence. The stronger the muscles are in an area, the more pressure they're going to take off passive structures, and vice versa. The weaker they are, the more pressure and stress on those passive structures. So getting these active and strong is really important. There's also the challenges when you start having pain, it tends to inhibit muscles. So the first thing you want to do is keep those muscles on, because if you have an irritated tissue that is not being supported by muscle, you're actually going to get more stress on it. So it's a mechanism that's not quite the best for a lot of situations. So keep those muscles on. Yeah. Awesome. One thing too, if you don't have access to bands or a PT immediately, 
Um, you could do the domes, the planes. Um, but one thing I like to do too is great toe depression. That's one way of activating the peroneus longus and creating a little bit of intrinsic support and activation to the region, as long as it's not too painful. Describe um, gate great toe depression. Yeah. So if you lay your foot flat on the ground, your big toe, you're just going to, and only the big toe if you're able to, but you're going to push that big toe into the ground. You technically don't need the ground. You could do it with your foot off the ground, but sometimes it's easier to have the feedback from the ground from a tactile standpoint, just to fire it a little bit easier. Um, and you can just do it sitting. Like you don't have to be standing and doing this. Um, but just getting some gentle isometric activation can also relieve some tension as well. Um, awesome. Yeah. Cool. So there's some quick tips. I think that if, if you've tried things like this um, and nothing seems to be working, this is where it's worth going in and, and seeing an ortho PT specialist to kind of screen out some other stuff and maybe have some other tips. There is also evidence uh, for early use of things like heel cups and like soft orthotics early on, not long-term. Long-term, no difference is what the kind of research is bearing out at, but short-term for pain relief, if it's a little bit more acute and you want to be able to walk without pain, putting in like a gel heel cup or something just to, to cut in that can be helpful. And same with kind of like a, a taping, um, but the taping is usually done by rehab professionals. So unless you know how to, how to tape, but the tape, again, Nathan made a great point. Taping an ortho, over-the-counter orthotic, you don't need to get fancy. The gel, these are things you can pick up at whatever local store, you know, like supermarket, what have you, should usually have them in the health section. Um, but remember that they are short-term. It's good for getting you out of pain, but it's not meant to be an ongoing intervention. If you are doing that, you are likely keeping yourself in a situation that may or may not be you know, leading to a chronic injury. I think what happens mentally is they do, they've been shown to help for the, in the yeah. first one to three weeks. They're so very good. Yeah. What, what happens is you start to use this thing and then you think that's what made me better. And it was a piece of, it was a piece of the puzzle, but you won't be dependent on it. And right. I think it is a really nice tool to use early on um, and then kind of go from there. So slowly ease out of it. So let's, um, this is kind of a nice segue. This next sec section is going to be uh, one that's inspired by one of our listeners. Um, and it's a question that they sent into us from Instagram. Um, so this is from Ada Rasid. And they said, hi there, kindly need advice. Which shoes should I look for when I have plantar fasciitis issue? Uh, they have flat feet and wide. I used to wear my Adidas Adi 01 in seven and a half. Uh, my daily morning brisk walking, uh, they go for 30 to 35 kilometers. Thanks so much for your kindly advice. And so I think this, this kind of brings us into the question, as, as always, hard for us to give specific advice to people. So we're going to take this concept and we're going to draw it out to a broader question of where does footwear come in when it comes to uh, plantar fascia pain? And we talked a little bit about some heel cups and where orthotics fit in and they're early. And that's pretty much it from, from what the, the large systematic reviews are showing right now. Um, but what do you guys think? How, and if, you know, what would you recommend for people who have kind of ongoing plantar fascia pain? What would you think? I think the initial part would be, again, as we've talked about this footwear type before, and it probably doesn't sound like we're suggesting this for everything, but it can be very helpful for foot and ankle related issues is anything that has a rockered sole. 
And the reason why that's a great example is because again, wait, David, can you bring, well, I know the pod, people on the podcast. So what shoe is that for the listeners? This is the Glide Ride 2. Yeah. So the Glide Ride has a very significant rocker, especially a toe spring, which means that instead of having to extend your toe yourself as you toe off, the shoe does it for you. So you don't have to stress the plantar fascia as much. So rockered shoes take a lot of pressure off the plantar surface or the bottom of the foot or any of the structures there in your calf. And they do shift it up into the knee and hip. So it's not forces don't disappear. So, but any kind of rockered shoe is something that we would suggest early on if that seems to be an ongoing issue for you. Um, it's a great way. And it's one of the things that I suggest for people that are in that early phase or they're having some trouble, or as Nathan would say, they're having that niggle that's going on. If it starts getting a little Niggles. more serious, you do need to see someone, but it can be a nice tool to add to, you know, modifying and making sure this is going in the right direction. Yeah. And I think you would, I think I'd almost start with a more broader stroke before I jump to footwear entirely. Um, because I don't know if I would want to be walking 30 kilometers in a glide ride every day. Um, but I mean, in an acute phase, if money is not an option or I mean, if, yeah, if, if you don't have to worry about money and you could just get whatever pair of shoes just to help in the meantime, sure. A rocker can help a little bit, but I think it's more important to look at the endurance and stability of the, of the foot intrinsics, the ankle stability, proprioception, making sure all those stirrup muscles we're talking about, everything's working properly and you're able to actually walk that distance without repetitive irritation to the region. And so if you have to take a step back for a little bit and lower the distance, you don't even have to take a full break, depending everyone's irritability is different, but um, you may have to have a little bit of activity modification initially and start addressing some impairments that might be there. Um, I don't know if I would jump to a shoe right away. Yeah, and I think, I think we purposefully are putting the, so far in these last two episodes, we're purposely putting the shoe question last. Everyone asks us question about shoes, but I think we want to make an effort on our end, even though we talk about shoes all the time, like I said last time, we want to put the, the attention on everything else first. Shoes are one piece of the puzzle that aren't, aren't going to be the first one. So it's so again, I want to emphasize that just to, 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 again, how important this is. When any of the three of us and injuries happen, okay, they happen to all of us. That's, you know, preventing anything is impossible because you never know what's going to come. When any of the three of us have like a little injury or a little niggle, we will modify our shoe choice to support what's what we're trying to where we what we know we need to do. But that is not the only thing. The biggest thing that we're going to start doing is going, how did I injure this? What do I need to start working on now from like a muscular standpoint, from working on making sure I maintain mobility? How much activity can I handle? A shoe can be part of that, but it is a part of the equation, not the whole thing. And this was something that I certainly, when I first started this website years ago, when I was working in running stores, made that mistake. And it took me a while to, you know, to going through school and learning this stuff, being a clinician to go, please know a shoe or an orthotic or any of these things we talked about can be a great short-term tool but please do not, do not forget about the factors that you need to address, like your muscular strength, your mobility, why this is getting injured. Because if you don't address that, you can be risking a the flaring up again later because you need to address all the underlying factors, not just one component. Yeah. I think this is one of those other scenarios where, you know, they, a study just came out in the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy about um, they did a retrospective um, analysis of like a previous study where they looked at how do motion control shoes 
um, change injury rates in people who have a history of uh, pronation related uh, um, injuries. And so plantar fascia pain can sometimes fall into that category. And so when it comes to footwear, people who have um, kind of that more chronic nature of plantar fascia pain, considering trying uh, a, a shoe that has some kind of pronation control built in could be a consideration. Doesn't mean that it's going to be the one that happens for you. And I think it needs, that idea needs to be combined with other ideas of trying shoes like the comfort filter where, that we've talked about a lot, where not only do you, we can't really match shoes to foot types right now, that's just not how it works, but there's some evidence to suggest that um, if you have a history of pronation related injuries, um, a, a motion control shoe might decrease that incident or the risk of it. And so if you can try a shoe that has some stability elements built in and it's comfortable, it could be worth considering that. That's not a strong recommendation for me, but it's, I think that's in the worth trying a stability shoe to see if you can find a comfortable one and then maybe trying it out. Anything else to add to her question? Thank you so much, um, Ada, for, for sending that in. You guys have anything else? What do you guys, so when David held up the glide ride, do you think it matters whether the shoe has a significant toe spring or heel bevel or both? What do you guys think? Yes. Um, what I was going to say is I, I, there are the shoe, do either of you have the magic speed? Uh, yeah, yeah. My magic speed. Oh, you know what? I think I just took them to the other room the other day. Okay. So don't worry about it. Bach, I the gave magic speed, um, has a toe spring that's built into the lat, like where your toes go up. So it brings your toes up. Whereas like the, uh, the shift is going to basically keep, or even the glide ride, but even the glide ride has a little one, but the shift keeps your toes pretty flat and the toe spring is coming in from the sole of the shoe and it's pretty rigid. And so I think that plays, that plays a role um, right there in terms of, does it bring your toes up and is the sole flexible? Cause if the sole's flexible, it doesn't really matter what the toe spring is like the Omni says it has its speed roll uh, inspired or whatever, but it's flexible enough where that's not going to, assist in this scenario right. as so you much wa you want a shoe that's it's got to be just right for you a little stiffer but you don't want the the rocker toe spring so much that some shoes will hold your toes up at extension that's going to just stress the plantar fascia all the time you want them to be in a, i mean wait yeah yeah it does that right some people can handle that some people for this situation i would not do that you need a shoe that keeps your feet toes a little more neutral in that middle position while the toe spring comes up under it um what do you guys think? You, How much of it? Yeah, go for it. I was going to ask kind of, cause there's the A6 glide ride, um, sits and even the, um, endorphin shifts that yep. the rocker is more forefoot oriented. Yep. What do you guys think more of like Hoka, um, the earlier stage rocker, um, and things like that? I, I personally, David go. I think it just kind of depends on the model. I think, Hoka in general does have that rocker design with the heel bevel and the toe spring. But if you look at a shoe like the Clifton, when you load it, it actually has a decent amount of flexibility up front with those, with those ridges, right. those flex grooves. So it's like, if you go to bend it, it's, it's somewhat rigid, but then if you actually step and load it, those things will flex. So I think, I think you just come back to the comfort factor. Again, the Arahi is the same way. The Bondi is probably the most rigid. But it's been a while since I've been in a Bondi. I actually, I'd be curious to see my thoughts going back into one 
Um, I'm just going off of memory from, from a while ago. So um, I think it would just depend on the model and that comfort factor again. I mean, even within that one company, a company makes a bunch of different kinds of shoes. It's not like, oh, ASICs, go to ASICs and they'll get, they'll take care of you. It's not as simple as that. No. So Please even if you that. look at a company like Hoka where they do a rocker, I mean, you could look at the Elevon, the Arahi, the Clifton, the Bondi, they're all going to have different feels. They're all going to have different flexibility. Um, the Hupana, you know, like some are going to be flexible. Some are going to be rigid. Some are going to have a sharper rocker than others. So there are, um, cert there are yeah. certainly some certain companies that tend to do things a certain way, but don't just be like, oh, well, for this injury, we always use this company. It's like, no, that's not how it works, you know, because the shoes are going to be so different, right? So if you say, oh, this is the company that always does this and you choose a track spike, like obviously this, I'm just being super extreme, right? But that's not going to work very well. So, I mean, I might um, have my speed Evos around. Let me see. The other thing I, I personally, for patience, this is going to get a little bit more advanced. And this is something you have to take a history and a collision. It's going to be better at looking at this is looking at whether the irritation of the plantar fascia is coming from a stretch-based injury, right? From loading it or from an impact-based injury. And for a lot of those people that have more of an impact related injury, if they are a heel striker, I, and I'm biased when I say this, I like the shoe to have a little bit more significant heel bevel because it basically replaces the heel rocker. So you can, the shoe helps roll you forward a little bit and maybe redirect a little bit of forces. I should comment that what I just stated isn't totally supported yet. We're still trying to figure out if it actually does that, but I personally like to shoot to have a little more of a heel rocker too. If it's, if they're getting a little bit more impact related pain and that'd be, Hey, it hurts most when you land on it versus if you're towing off, that's when it hurts. So a heel rock, a heel bevel and a toe spring in the right place, keeping your foot in the right place is something I, I value. If you are looking for a shoe to help with this. That's a great distinction, Matt. Thanks. Yep. Okay, we are going to move on to our final section for the night. Um, it's on this big question of how do differences in body weight play a role in choosing shoes? Um, this topic was inspired by one of our followers, Jonathan Castano, and he asked this question. Hi, was wondering uh, what the best recovery slash easy long day shoes would be for a 100 kilogram guy. Saw the review of the Bondi X and sounds pretty good. Wondering if something else would be better. Thank you in advance for any help. And so he's obviously asking about some specific shoes, but let's start with the global question of what do we know and how do we think about uh, body weight influencing shoe choice? And then we'll go into a specific question. This is a super interesting question because it's not, it, you would think, oh, bigger person, you need more cushioning. Uh, that's not what we've seen clinically and definitely not what the research is showing. There is actually some evidence that lighter, skinnier runners can benefit from a little bit more cushioning. There, there's some evidence to suggest that, but when it comes to heavier runners, a heavier or more cushioned shoe doesn't necessarily keep you more injury-free. And that's been, they keep looking at this and they keep coming up with nothing on that. Again, like I said, there's some early evidence to suggest that lighter runners can benefit from more cushioning. Um, in terms of potentially redu reducing running-related injuries, but it's still a little bit out there. But bigger runners, it depends on your mechanics. It depends on you. What do you guys yeah, think? Yeah, I, I think this whole comfort factor is huge. I mean, yeah. no matter what weight the individual is 
or their biomechanics when they run, these foams are going to decompress. They're going to respond. It's, it's a shoe and it's a tool, like we keep saying. I, I think you kind of just have to find what works for you. I mean, if your feet swell a lot, if your feet collapse, I don't know, like whatever works for you. I know someone who's a large frame and they run ultra Escalantes and they love them. You know, you would think like, oh, well, it's a low stack and it's real wide and it's not whatever, you know, I, I think it's just, a, it's, it's comfort dependent. I mean, obviously everyone's going to have their own individual characteristics and um, maybe some are, don't have the greatest proprioception and don't like those high stack shoes anyways, because they can't feel the ground underneath them. That's not going to do anyone any good. If, uh, with the added stack if you can't process where you even are in space. Um, so I, I just think no matter what, the foam's gonna decompress, the shoe's gonna get loaded and it's gonna respond in a manner of the forces you put into it. Outside of that, it's gonna be your own individual mechanics and, and what works best for you. I, I have a hard time, I'm very reluctant to give a specific um, answer or recommendation for that. I, I totally agree with David that I comfort is going to be the most important thing. I think that's for any runner and not just someone who has a higher body weight. Um, there's, I've had the same thing and this is totally anecdotal, but I've definitely had those larger frame runners who are as big, if not bigger than the individual that's sending us this question. And they love the only shoes they like is running in, you know, vibrant five fingers and they are not having any injuries. They're still coming to check with me. And I'm like, you're running how many miles a week in that shoe? And they're doing fine. And there's other runners who will be like, I can't run in anything but the Bondi. And that's what I can handle. So because of that, we don't really have any evidence thus far to suggest body weight really telling us what shoe you should wear. Because again, like we keep saying, it's one factor among many other things that will determine whether a shoe is going to work for you. So our suggestion should be, hey, if you can get to a local running store and try some stuff on based on your foot shape, based on what you think you might feel as comfortable. And that might also be a journey for you to learn what you find is comfortable. And that's part of being a runner. And that can also change over time. So I don't And have an open mind to try different shoes that aren't just handed to you. Because a lot of times you'll go into a local running store and I'm not saying all running stores do this, but they'll say, you have a flat feet, you need a stability shoe. Let me grab you the Keanu. Let me grab you the adrenaline. And they just go and they grab these boxes and yes, you're trying different shoes, but you're only trying one category or whatever they feel just based on you coming in. And so if you want a larger variety, just be open about that and say like, what about that one? I wouldn't mind trying that and just, and just seeing, you know, I mean, obviously you're, you're a paying customer and you're, and you want to see what you like. And so I think sometimes people fall to the options that are just given to them. They say, okay, we'll make it easy for you. Here's three or four things that work for most people. And you might not be most people. So my, my solution to that was when I was younger, I just started working in a running store so I could spend hours trying shoes on. And so I still need <laughs> to figure out what I like. So I started this website. Yeah. And I know people too. Sorry. Uh, just to go back to it. I know people that have larger frames. Some of them are bodybuilders or just larger runners and they run in racing flats like cross-country racing flats that's why i grabbed the rc2 not that this is a um a cross-country flat per se but i know someone that's large frame they run in nike streak lts and they've done a marathon in those and they're fine that is impressive i would not do that at least not anymore i, 
but yeah, I mean, and, and it's not for everyone, but no. you, you find what works and, and you go from there. And like we said, this is anecdotal, right? So every person could be different just because we're talking about a couple of patient scenarios or individual scenarios does not mean that's going to work for you. If you have a larger frame, or even if you have a smaller frame, or even if you have a medium frame, which is saying, we know that there's no solid evidence suggesting that, oh, this body weight needs to go in this shoe when it comes to running. I think I have a, another piece of considering this topic. Um, I have a coworker who I think is brilliant and he's been he's been kind of a foot specialist for the last like 20, 25 years. Um, and one of the things that he, um, wonders all the time is why don't shoe companies change their type of midsole for different weighted people? Um, and the reason he asks that question, and I have something else to add to that too, is the reason he asks that question is, is again, here's some anecdotal stuff is he often sees more asymmetrical wear patterns in his heavier runners um, than he does in his kind of more average weight runners because of the deformation of the foam more quickly over time. And so if you think about the trend in the current running shoe industry, you're getting all of these lightweight foams that are getting higher stacked and have more capacity to compress. And so I think something to consider for and this, you know, again, this is again, all anecdotal, but you guys have talked about people who you've had who are heavier runners who prefer less stack underneath their foot. And that could be a potential part of it where they're not experiencing asymmetrical wear of the shoe more quickly. And the durability lasts longer for you because there's less to just compress through. And then the shoe is different than it was designed for because you're compressing it so quickly. And so I think something to consider is, is that, and I, and we, I can't say who, but we actually had a meeting with the company last week. And when they are designing a certain sect of their running shoes, they actually try to find heavier runners to test them. Because as we've talked about for people with plantar fascia, a predisposing factor is being heavier. And so um, this company is wise in testing shoes and looking at their wear in their wear testing um, in the population that they think the shoe is designed for. And so uh, I wish I could say more about that because I think it could be helpful for consumers thinking about, oh, who has this been tested in? Me not meaning like research study tested, but wear tested in. Just um, oh. for the listeners, again, when we're referring to wear test, it means that most shoes when they're in the prototype phase are only made in a certain size and they're made in the size that's cheapest, right? Which is typically a men's size nine or correct me wrong, a women's size eight. So because every time you change the size, it's an insane amount of money. They want a company wants to make sure that they can test it in that one size and make all the changes there, then expand it out. Because, yeah. And they do that because it's so expensive. So most of the time, like I said, men's size nine, women's size eight, which is why I cry all the time because I'm size 10 and Nathan <laughs> is size nine and David can fit into size nine. So I'm sitting over here going, no one loves me. I'm just kidding. But this company has actually expanded, was doing size testing in size 10 and a half, size 11, which is like almost unheard of, right? It's pretty standard in the industry to do nine. But to do this, the reason they're looking at that is like Nathan said, they're going, what we're looking at in size nine is not necessarily relating to what we're seeing with a larger foot size or a larger runner, right? In size 10 and a half, 11. So that's why they're doing that. And it's impressive. We can't say who it is or address this, but it's expensive. So yeah. they care. It's worth doing. Cause as Nathan said, 
different body weights are going to de- deform shoes differently. We just don't have the evidence to make really good um, recommendations based on that because there's so many other factors that affect how somebody interacts with the shoe, which is why, again, our suggestion is comfort because there's a lot of good evidence on that. And we see that clinically as well. Yeah. If your shoe is not comfortable, you're not going to want to wear it. So, right. so I think for, for me in that kind of last caveat about potential early wear issues, I think that that's where, you know, you, he, this person was asking specifically about the Bondi X that's a really soft shoe. And I've actually noticed changes in like how the foam feels over after even 25 miles, I started feeling that difference. And so, you know, that might end up not being the best option because it might wear out more quickly and not keep its structure. Whereas like the original Bondi is more of a, a firmer high stack shoe, which might be why some people have more luck with it. Um, right. It is more firm, right? Yeah, in my experience, yeah, I mean, from what I remember, it was pretty firm, but it's 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 very protective. I mean, it's kind of like that firm protective where it's like you got a lot of stack, plenty of protection. I remember my proprioception was whacked out for the first Mm -hmm. few weeks, Um, but yes, it was a firmer ride rocker type feel. From it's not squishy soft though. No. Yeah. So you know that that might be something worth considering is finding a shoe. Trying out, trying out the variety with comfort. Maybe if you're more strapped for cash, uh, in in terms of buying shoes, you try to think about durability as a reason. Where if two shoes feel the same, and one shoe has the potential for higher durability, you might want to go that route. And that could be something that is lower stack or that is a little bit firmer, um, just because those structures, those cell structures, are likely a little bit stronger. So that'd be my only other consideration for this person. Well, thank you guys for joining us for the round table today. Um, we still don't have a script from Bach on how to sign off on this. So uh, here we go. We have our, uh, we, we love what's going on here. We would love to keep answering and be inspired by your questions for those of you who are listening. And so please send those to us. You can email us at doctorsofrunning at gmail.com or you can find us on Instagram Facebook, Twitter, and we also have a Strava group, but you can message us privately in those other ones. Um, But yeah, join us on Strava, see kind of what we're up to. And um, obviously our website, doctorsofrunning.com has all of our latest reviews, including the one of the Endolapatet, the second version of it here with the new upper. And we're glad you guys joined us today and we look forward to next time.